The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Turn in your copy of God's Word now to, to Luke 24, 1 through 12. Luke 24, 1 through 12 is where we're going to uh, pick up now. Like I said uh, on our Good Friday service, we were reading through several chapters, several passages there in Luke, and we got to the point where Jesus was buried. But as I said earlier, that's not the end of the story, is it, church? It is not. There is Luke 24, and the passage I'm going to read for us now as we read about Christ's resurrection and this empty tomb. And so I'm going to begin by just reading these verses for us to set the table. And uh, hopefully, as we'll see here, we can once again marvel in amazement at what happened on that resurrection morning. Are you ready for it? Did you find it? It's in the New Testament there. Matthew, Mark, and... Luke, you'll find it there. Listen and follow along in your Bible as I uh, read our verses here for us uh, to begin. Luke 24 says this, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told the, these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is God's word for God's people. You know, we, we know full well the dark days of this last year, don't we? Dark days of the pandemic, the threats to businesses, the threats to our own uh, physical uh, health. We know the threats of uh, the issues of our day, the racial and political things, but they pale in comparison as we consider the dark days of Jesus' death. Where we left off on Good Friday and what happened there as the Lord, our Savior, was crucified, brutally beaten, horrifically tortured. Consider the dark days for his disciples, those that walked closely with him day after day, hearing his teaching, witnessing his power, witnessing his ability uh, and his uh, superiority over all the people, all the spiritual forces of the day. Consider the darkness of his parents, his mother and her friends, the women, as they watched the Savior hang on the cross and be buried. And the confusion and the wonder about what was going to happen. 
But church, don't we also know the bright hope of this last year? The bright hope of the transforming power of the gospel. Some of you in this room right now have come to faith in Jesus Christ in this last year. Some of you have taken steps in maturity, growing in your walk with Christ as you were squeezed and pressed uh, through the ups and downs of this last year. I think all of us, our faith has been galvanized through this last year. As we've seen it put to the test, we've seen the bright hope of the transforming power of the gospel. Consider the words that we just read here, the bright hope that Jesus was alive as they ran to the tomb and did remember his words, remember what Jesus had told them multiple times in his ministry through his teaching that he would be beaten, he would be crucified, he would be buried, and he would rise again. Imagine and consider the bright hope that caused them to run to that tomb. See, today as a day now is a message about this one word, and it is hope. The hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And as we think about this truth, this, the truth of the hope that we have, it really brings with it two very simple applications. You'll see them as we take notes here. You'll see the applications as we go. But here is the central truth of our message today, of this passage, really of the resurrection as we think of what this day represents. And it is simply this. Because Jesus lives, I hope. You may have seen that on that little card, an invitation that maybe someone gave you to, uh, to come this morning. Maybe you gave that out. But it's that central truth here. It's uh, uh, on the screen. Because Jesus lives, I hope. And maybe that needs to be our call and response, right? Uh, At the beginning of the service, I said, Christ is risen, and you say, that's right. And I think we need to to start our own redemption call and response on, uh, not just for Easter Sunday, but if someone says, because he lives, then you say, I hope. Hey, you got that, man. You're all pretty smart. Or coffee. You're the, this is the later service. I mean, your coffee is set in. You've had some breakfast. Your mind is working a, a, a pretty sharp this morning. So let's, let me do that again. Because he lives. I hope. I, that's, that's good. One more time. Because he lives. I hope. That's right. This, let this church be our anthem. Let this sink deep in our heart, especially on those days when we think we have no hope. But this is a fact. This first part of the phrase, because he lives, because Jesus is alive, this is a truth for our daily life. It's not just a fact for the history books, something that we read about in the scriptures, something that happened a long time ago, but what we read in Luke 24 here and other passages in the scripture are actual events that prove that Jesus was not just some mere human who died died a, a death like every human would die, but the fact of his resurrection is what sets him apart, what makes him not just merely human, but amazingly God. Amazingly God. And so this gives us some great hope, but what is, what, how, do, how do we know these things? How, how can we just say uh, that we believe these things are true? Well, uh, this morning I'm not going to attempt to give you like a whole apologetics lecture and reason through all the ways that uh, Jesus is uh, alive. I'd love to talk with you about that. If you're skeptical, if you're wondering those things, I'd love to meet with you even this. The guys that was involved in the Watergate scandal. 
Remember hearing about that, reading about that in the history books? Well, God used that, uh, that scandal and that tumultuous time in our American history. He used it, uh, that season to bring this man, Chuck Colson, to faith. It meant he even went to prison. Uh, you can read his biography called Born Again, and you can read all the, the, the details of that. But in the midst of that, this man, he came to faith, and he has this great quote. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. And what in the world? Watergate? A scandal? A political scandal? How did this prove it? He says, how? Why? Because 12 men testified. They had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that for 40 years if it were not true. He said, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep the lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? He ends his quote by saying, absolutely impossible. Impossible. They saw Jesus. You can go and read uh, the story in 1 Corinthians 15 as Paul talks about it. And the, the, it wasn't just the 12 that saw him, but hundreds saw the resurrected Christ and began to proclaim it uh, for the rest of their lives. And here's the testimony of it, that people have been proclaiming that Jesus is alive ever since then. It is a message that we here at Redemption proclaim week after week as we, uh, as we open up the scriptures, as we seek to live out its truth. We hope because Jesus is alive. But what do we do with this hope? Well, I said there's two simple applications, and the first is this. We run to hope. Write this down. Take these notes here. Get this in your mind. What do we do with the hope, the, the fact that Jesus is alive? Well, we run to the tomb. In Luke 24 here, at the news of the empty tomb, what did Peter do in verse 12? He ran. He made haste. Imagine the excitement. Imagine the anticipation in his own mind. Imagine as he was listening to uh, this news and remembering back what Jesus had been said. Imagine the hope welling up in him thinking, could this indeed be true? Could Jesus uh, be alive? Is the tomb actually empty? You know, it's also interesting, if we were to go back to read in Mark 16, I would encourage you to do that this afternoon, but in Mark's account of this, after the disciples get there, they see, they, have the, they talk with the angel and all that. Guess what they do at the news of this? They run from the tomb. It says they flee, they're trembling and astonished, both their body and mind shaking with the news. See, here's the response. When news of Jesus' resurrection, it, it, it provokes in those who understand this truth a speed in which to respond. And so, church, let me just encourage you this morning as we again, yet again, I've put the, the reality of the resurrection, the hope that Jesus is alive. Let me encourage you this morning to run to him. Don't walk. Don't walk. Don't, don't dilly-dally, but make haste to the cross. Make haste to Jesus. Don't uh, meander your way. But make haste with speed. Don't walk. Don't wait. Don't wait at the news of this. Sometimes we think, well, I want to, I want to experience this life. I want to get married first. I have these ambitions. I want to travel. I want to do these things, and I'll get right with the Lord in time. No, no, no. Church, run. Run to hope. Don't wind your way. 
Don't detour. Don't uh, take uh, side, uh, you know, side alleys and backways. Rather, make a beeline to hope. We run to hope. See, the, the direction that we're going, the, the destination that we're going are very important, aren't they? If you had news of, of a great joy, a relative, somebody in Austin, you would, make the, you would take the straightest route, the quickest route, the most efficient route. Now, that might be I-35, but, you know, depending upon the time of the day. But the fact is we would make haste to get there to see this friend or family member, this person that we love. See, as we run to Christ, this isn't just an aimless pursuit. It's not just uh, running in circles around a track, hoping to win a prize, hoping to uh, pass the baton off. But see, life is all about running to a person. The Lord Jesus Christ, a Jesus who is not dead today, but is alive, seated at the right hand of the Father, isn't he? And because of this, this gives us hope. And so what is this hope? Well, hope has a name that we'll get to. Hope is a, is a person that I've said to, but what is this hope that we have? Well, here's a definition that I think is helpful for us. Hope is uh, simply this. It's a confident expectation of better days ahead. It's a confident expectation of better days ahead. See, church, we can have this confident hope, a confident expectation that whatever we're going through today, it only gets better for the believer. Do you believe that, church? See, hope, this, this is the definition, but here's what hope is not. Hope isn't uh, just wishful thinking, okay? Hope isn't, you know, just like, well, I hope it doesn't rain today because we have some plans this afternoon to play outside, right? I hope it doesn't rain and melt all the peeps that I have hidden in my backyard. <laughs> hope isn't, uh, you know, it's not just naive optimism. Yeah, I hope I get a, a raise this week at work. You know, I, I, I haven't done anything to earn it or deserve it. I just, you know, I just have this optimism about it. It's also not uninformed reasoning. It's not without proof. It's not without fact. See, hope is a confident expectation that is built off both fact and faith in Jesus Christ. His perfect history of faithfulness, how he's proven himself true over and over and again all throughout human history. And so we run to hope. We flee to hope. We find hope or confidence and assurance in refuge in Jesus Christ. And so go over to Hebrews 6 with me for just a moment. I want you to see this, uh, this hope that we have and the proof and the assurance that the writer of Hebrews puts before us. Hebrews 6 will be in verses 17 through 20. I want you to just see Hebrews. If you just keep going to the right in your Bible, you'll find it uh, back there. We're unsure who wrote it if you're curious. But man, it is jam-packed with truth. And so listen here. I can hear you turning to it. Listen, this is Hebrews 6, 17 through 20. It says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's the Jewish people, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Amen. That's a good place for an amen right there. We who have fled for refuge in their place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is God's word for God's people. And as I read that, some maybe are like, wait, who, what, what's going on here? 
what the writer of Hebrews is getting at is he's, as we are encouraged to flee, to take refuge, to run to hope, he is showing us that our hope has substance. It, it has a foundation that is built not in, uh, not in just naive optimism, not in uninformed reasoning, but in the unchangeable character of God. See, when God made an oath or a promise or a covenant with Abraham, the context teaches, and when he promised in the new covenant that we would be saved by the blood of the Lamb through Christ, it is not based on our works. It is not based on what we have to do or any promises that we make, but it is based in the unchanging, sure, and steadfast character of God. There is proof. There is history. There is unchangeable stability and who God is, and what he has done, and what he has promised to do. So hope has substance, and hope has safety. It has safety. This is where we come to. This is where we we flee for refuge. We run to him with all we have. See, in a time of war, when we're being chased or we're being threatened, where do we want to go? The place of greatest safety, right? Where the bad guys can't get us, where, the, uh, where the, the bully can't find us, where the temptation does not exist. And guess where the safest place in all the world is, church? In the presence of our Lord. In his presence here as, he's, as he dwells among us, as we're opening his word, as he's, as he's with us and the hope that we have for all eternity as we are with him. See, hope has substance, hope has safety, hope has purpose. It gives us an assurance that verse 19 teaches us about. We have as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And all the ups and downs and all the chaos and tumultuous things of this past year and the things that maybe are still happening in your life, where can you run to for stability, for safety, for steadfast hope? To Christ. See, church, when is an anchor needed most? You know, you're fishing. If you're out on the water, when do you need an anchor the most? You can talk to me. Come on. Yeah, in the midst of a storm. That's right. I thought some of you fishermen might say, when I found the honey hole, right? When I found the spot where the ledge where they're biting, you know, you drop the anchor so you can, you can just park there and just, just pull them out one after another, which there's a metaphor there as well, I think, for, uh, uh, for, for the Christian life. But we drop anchor in the storm when the wind is raging around us, when we're being tossed to and fro, when there's danger of being capsized. We drop anchor so that we have a sure and steadfast point in which to be unshaken. Church, when is hope needed most? When is our faith proven most? When is God's strength on display when, when is his presence the nearest to us? In the storms, in the trials of life, we experience the nearness of God unlike any other time. We experience the assurance of our faith, the confident expectation that we have as we see God coming through again and again, even when it is the most difficult. See, our hope has a purpose. Hope has substance, it has safety, and it has a name. Verse 20 tells us his name, his name is Jesus, the one who has gone before us, the one who paved the way, the one who showed us how to live in a way that honors God, the one who lived on our behalf as a substitute, and the one who is now raised again to a glorified body and has gone into the presence of God behind the curtain. 
for his death, what happened at the cross, what the curtain that separated uh, the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, what happened there? It was torn in two. He went in leading the way. Jesus now is alive in heaven at the right hand of God, interceding us for us as our great high priest, not in the order of Levi, but in the order of Melchizedek. Church, because Jesus lives, I hope. Because Jesus lives, now let me ask this question. Are you living today as if Jesus is dead? Are you living today as if he is unresponsive to your prayers? Are you living today as if he is not powerful to come through in your situation? Are you living today as if his wisdom is somehow uh, lesser than yours or human wisdom of the day? Or are you living as if Jesus is alive, our great high priest, the one who is interceding and living before us? If so, run to him every day, every moment of your life. We run to him for our salvation. We run to him for wisdom. We run to him for our maturity. We run to him uh, for our hope. We run to him for our joy. And because of this, this gives us hope for the prodigal child. It gives us hope for that impossible situation. It gives us hope for that rock-hard heart that we're dealing with. It gives us hope for heaven. It gives us hope for our own resurrection to eternal life. There's no fear in death. There's no fear in this life. Come what may, all the threats of the day, of the diseases and things of the day are mitigated. Why? Because Jesus is alive. And this is a truth that we must over and over repeat to one another. Let us never cut the anchor to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And when we see one another drifting away, picking up anchor or cutting it off, let us bring one another back to the hope that we have that Jesus is alive. And so we run to it, we flee to him in everything in our life. We think about the hope that we have as we think about the victory in Christ, that he is alive now and what that means for us today. What should that provoke in our hearts, church? Joy. It should worship in the same way that Peter left that uh, tomb. He marveling at what had happened. He saw it and he believed. Don't be like the, the people in Luke 24 who, who in hearing these things, they thought it was an idle tale and they did not believe. But there's proof, there's hope, there's substance here. And as we know it and as we experience it, this gives us hope. And it's a hope that Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 12. He tells us to rejoice in it. Do you see that there? Turn over to Romans 12. It's, it's a very simple little statement. It's tucked in the list of these 12 attributes flowing from love. It's a participle here. We can say rejoicing in hope. These marks of following Christ, of gospel people. He's in these verses here, 9 through 13. What we're told here to rejoice, to have a joy. Why? In the hope that we have. If you've been with us, if redemption is your church home, what have we been studying the last several months? What book in the Bible? Philippians, right? I hear someone say Colossians. It's wrong church, not here. We've been in Philippians. And what has been a reoccurring theme in that book producing durability in us? It's been a theme of joy. And how have we defined joy? To uh, have joy is to be satisfied in Christ, right? 
to be satisfied in Christ. So that longer definition of, of choosing to be impacted by the character of God, oh, not my circumstances. And so when we are commanded here, this, the, the, the verb form of joy, rejoicing here, here's, a, here's just a simple j- definition. It is expressing our satisfaction in Christ back to Christ. And we, 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 this is commanded all in the scriptures. We see it over and over in the Psalms. This is a lifestyle of worship for those who follow Christ as we sing with joy, as we pray with joy, as we give with joy, as we serve with joy, as we fellowship with joy, as we open our Bibles with joy. We are to rejoice or express our satisfaction in Christ back to Christ. But this joy, this rejoicing can be elusive for us, can it? I mean, some of y'all are maybe just kind of predisposed to a happy attitude in here, right? How many of you are married to that type of person that just wakes up in the morning with like their bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and just have joy in their heart? Some of y'all, yeah, like yeah, I'm not that. I'm not that uh, person, right? It can irritate. My daughter said this morning that uh, uh, she she told Aaron that she's five. She's like, I like when Malachi wakes me up because when Daddy wakes me up, he says too many things. <laughs> I guess I mean I try I'm, I I'm that guy that wakes up and I wake up early and I wake up joyful. Get a cup of coffee in me and start reading the Bible and I I have lots to say. My best hours are from like five to seven a.m. Yeah. Come and hang out with me then. <laughs> And apparently when I wake my daughter up, that's, I say, too many things. <laughs> There's a proverb about that that I need to take heed of. <laughs> but see, here's the thing, church. Joy can be elusive when we hitch our joy to the wrong things, right? See, where our joy is choosing to be impacted by the character of God and not our circumstances. And so when our joy is hitched to our circumstances, our ever-changing circumstances, things beyond our control, those situations that are here and gone and always evolving, always changing, numerous variables here, when we hitch our joy to our circumstances, where does it go? It goes in the ditch. Our joy, our, our joy is sidelined here in circumstances. When our joy is hitched to our feelings, when we just think, uh, well, it, it's just how I'm feeling today, or when it's hitched to people, people who fail us, people who sin against us, when, it's, when our joy is hitched to our achievements, our own ability to, to uh, accumulate more, to be promoted, or to, uh, to get more awards. And then when we don't, or they are a thing of the past and are just collecting dust, and we're like, well, I guess I don't have joy. And we're chasing the next thing. But our joy, when it's hitched to the right things, to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus Christ, the work that he's doing in our life and how everything in our life is a gospel opportunity, an opportunity to advance this good news of Jesus Christ that he lived on a perfect life uh, on our behalf, the life that we couldn't live and he died the death that we were supposed to die and now he lives and we get the benefit of it. Our joy is hitched to the gospel and when it's hitched to the character of God and his goodness and his kindness and his sovereignty, his holiness, when our joy is hitched to Jesus, when our joy is hitched to the hope that Jesus is alive, then it shines as a bright light like the sun over all the other things in our life. Does this mean our circumstances, our feelings, our people, or, 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 or promotions and achievement, does that mean they're unimportant? No, it's real life. Daily life, it's the things that we're going through. But when our joy is not hitched to them and it's hitched to something bigger, more eternal, it shines a light over it. 
Imagine the hope that the disciples had on this day as they knew that Jesus was alive. The tomb was empty. And yet the sting of betrayal by Judas still lingered there. He wasn't there with them. The guilt that Peter felt for denying Jesus, the, the shame that the, all the disciples were feeling for abandoning him in, in, in Jesus' hour of great need, especially of the three when Jesus just needed them to pray with him uh, through the night and they couldn't, they just kept falling asleep on him. And the confusion over all the events and the things that were happening, what was going to happen next and the, uh, how they didn't have the clarity about what they were to do next and the, what was all happening. Even in the middle was alive. He is who he says he is. And their joy was not hitched to, to, to the wrong things. Their joy was rather hitched to the right things. And so, church, this is what we do. We run to it. We rejoice in the hope that we have, church, don't we? This is what Easter is all about. This is what life of following Christ is all about. It is a life of hope. And this command here to rejoice in it is one that shines a light, the light of the sun over all things. It warms even the coldest of situations. It uh, enlightens all of the darkest situations. Because Jesus is a live church, we have hope, right? Hope for eternal life with glorified bodies. Hope for reconciliation. Hope for unity amongst every tribe and tongue and nation of this world. Hope for a life under the rule and reign of the King of Kings. See, church, is there hope today? Is there hope for your life, the situation you're in right now? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you have hope for eternity? Absolutely. Absolutely. Keep your eyes fixed on the risen Christ. Keep your hope fixed on, on, on the risen Christ. Give him your loudest praise, your most vigorous worship. Let us rejoice in hope. See, hope has a name, and his name is Christ the one who has conquered death and is now today alive, ruling, and reigning. And because of that, we can with confidence say our best days are yet ahead. Can't we, church? Our best days are yet ahead. Even if you think you're living your best life now, man, Christ has something greater in store for us as we seek to live with him in eternity. Because he lives because he lives, because he lives, that's right, because he lives, let me pray for us.